Today, we are going to walk in the shoes of a child going through foster care. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I am not here with Kat today. Today, I am here with Nicole, and she is joining me in the studio while Kat is on vacation with her kiddos. Today, we have a special guest, an amazing social worker, and former foster youth. We are so happy to have Marissa with us today. Welcome to the studio, Marissa. Thank you. Marissa, we have a very important question for you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? These days, I think it's a vanilla sweet cream gold brew. It's nice. pretty simple, but um, I still get the coffee flavor, and but it's still a little sweeter. I like that one. I haven't I, had that. I was drinking that for a while when it, when they first started making those cold brews instead of iced coffees. I'm definitely a fan of it. Lately, I've gone back to the chai more than anything. You know, we all I like it at least, right? <laughs> I was I actually, chai. I will tell you, I was in Target. Um, I don't know if I told you this. I probably didn't tell you this, but I was having a tough day this week because one of my kids had like a medical thing, you know, not one that you have to worry about, but, and I had to run to the hospital and it turned out to be nothing. Thing, but it was scary. And then the next day I had to do all the school stuff. So I was really stressed and I hadn't eaten or drank. And I was walking around Target, just starting to feel like the walls were closing in on me and having like a little bit of an anxiety attack that I haven't had in like 20 years. And out of the blue, Kat walks into the aisle. Like I didn't even know she was at Target and, but she knew I was there and she's like, Hey, I saw your bus outside. Are you okay? She's like, you don't look okay. Here, let me grab baby Jack and go grab you an Elise. So I, I was so stressed out in that moment. I didn't even realize what she had said, but all of a sudden it's me and um, my seven-year-old and I'm looking at him. I'm like, all right, let's go shopping. So we were walking around. She shows back up with baby Jack and an Elise and I took a sip and I felt better immediately. Oh, that is so, so amazing. Elise helped me this week get through the back to school stress and uh, it it was just so it was so funny that I'm just walking down Target and Kat just appeared in the moment that I needed her over by Magnolia and Opal House and you know I was looking at some cute home decor (laughs) but you know trying not to like have a mental breakdown because of the lack of sleep lack of food lack of anything what perfect timing it was on her part I know she's good man that's seriously I mean it's funny how Target and Starbucks can just like make all the difference in your day sometimes, right? I completely agree. My sister, I'll send her a picture and she'll know it's like a rough day because I'll have gotten two drinks. Like I'll get a chai and a coffee and she's like, are you right? Oh my word. (laughs) I I will say that I have not had my chais the same since Elise. I don't think I've had a non-Elise since Elise. So, you know, definitely made some changes in my life. (laughs) Uh, So Marissa, can you tell me what your current career is and um, what your experience with foster care is? So I'm a master's level social worker. I currently work in licensing, but I was a case manager a few years ago. My experience with foster care system, um, I mean, I, I work in it as a professional and I was um, in the system as a, as a child. So we are going to walk through the process of being in foster care for a kid. Every kid has a completely different experience. Some children 
children, when they're removed from their families, go immediately to relatives or non-relative caregivers. Sometimes you go to foster care, sometimes group homes, all kinds of different experiences. And I know that you, Marissa, had a different experience, but let's kind of review what happens to a kid when they come into foster care so we can kind of get an understanding of that. What is the first thing that happened when it, when a kid comes into care? How, how does that come to happen? Usually a report is made to the hotline, but if a child is present during like a crime, um, they will call Child Protective Investigation out with the officers and then they can initiate a case at that point. Either they're present during a crime and get removed from that situation or a call is made to a hotline and an investigation has started. Is that right? Yes. So is there a CPI investigation regardless, right? Whether it's happening at a crime or... In most cases, um, some counties actually, uh, the Department of Children and Families actually does the investigation. And that's only if the report from the call into the hotline is actually accepted. Because I think there's times where reports are called in and it might not meet the requirements um, of their like prong system that they use to say that it rises to the level of an investigation. Right. So whenever a report is called into the hotline, they uh, go through a series of questions and it's either screened in or screened out based on whether it rises to the level of concern needed for an investigation. As a foster parent, we're one of the people that are um, mandatory reporters. So I have had multiple situations where I've had to call a report in. And I feel like in most of the situations that I've called in, they've accepted it. But I do know, especially because when you look at a child's case, when they first come into your home, you'll see that many calls were made often that weren't accepted. And sometimes when enough calls come in, that's when they accept it and start an investigation. Right. Is that? Yes. That's been my experience has been as well. I have also made several calls. There was one call that I made where the report was not accepted on a child. And that's kind of when I realized they have this like prong system where they ask questions to determine whether the case is accepted or not accepted. Right. Yes. And I mean, it depends on the level of detail that you have and whether their perception of what you're saying meets those requirements of concern. But a lot of times they do accept things just so that the investigation can take place and to to rule it out. Sometimes somebody will ask me, do you think I should call and report this? If you absolutely know that something happened or you have some type of evidence for it, I always say absolutely call it in because that's their job to investigate. It's not yours. And even if they don't accept it, it's noted, it's recorded. And then if somebody else sees the same thing and calls it in, then that makes it more likely for them to accept it in the future. And, you you know, we're talking about the safety of kids. That's important. And it's kind of the basic premise that we've all heard. If you see something, say something. There Absolutely. is no harm in speaking up. And like Absolutely. you said, it's not our responsibility to determine what happens from there, but it is our responsibility to call it in and let that professional determine what the next step needs to be. Even the screened out reports are still documentation. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I do know, like, because I have had foster children in my home and talked to other kids, people who have been foster kids, where they've said, you know, things were going really bad a lot longer than anybody knew about it, but nobody called in. And, you know, things don't happen in a black hole. Somebody was seeing things and not calling it in. And these kids, you know, like I, I had this one kid where this horrible thing happened to them and nobody ever called anything about it. And it was like five years later before that kid came into care. And um, it's just that child was like, I really wish someone knew what was going on before. And even if something is unfounded, because there there are a couple different determinations once an investigation starts, right? Yes, there are a few determinations. So even if the call is accepted, it doesn't necessarily mean that a child is going to be removed or anything. I think that's what we all kind of see because then we have the kids in care, but that's not the only thing that happens. There are other programs like safe at home and safety planning and things. If they do see that maybe CPI does see that maybe something is wrong or maybe something, maybe the parents or the family could use a little bit of help, but it doesn't have to rise to the level of the child being removed from the home. Absolutely. In a lot of cases, actually, diversion services are in place before. It's actually part of their efforts to keep the family together in many cases, if, if it can be done. 
when I have looked at the stats, it's actually way more um, families are being helped and given services when CPI comes out than just having kids removed from their home. That's usually like the last ditch effort. So I think um, when a CPI does an investigation, they determine it's either unfounded or they can mitigate what's going on by putting services in place in the home or they determine that the child needs to be removed. So those are the three potential outcomes. Up until this point, what has been the child's experience? So initially there was something that happened to them. Right. Right. They have a trauma that happens. CPI comes out and they see these professionals and sometimes things get better. Sometimes they don't. I think even sometimes when we see an unfounded report, that doesn't necessarily mean that nothing happened. There's just no proof that anything happened. And so I think the child has likely still been traumatized in many of those unfounded cases. I would agree. Basically, a CPI decides whether it's unfounded, they can work with them in place or um, they remove. And then sometimes they work with them in place and end up having to remove at some point in the future. When they do decide to remove, one of the first things that happens is that CPI is going to reach out and try and find someone to take the child rather than immediately going to foster care. Right. So. Right. They're looking for a relative or a friend or a neighbor or somebody. A teacher. A teacher. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Somebody that can kind of step in that already knows the child and doesn't bring the child into foster care. And when the kids are with CPI, they seem to have these magical powers to get things done very quickly. (laughs) Suddenly a home study approved. (laughs) Background checks immediately are done and approved. They do have more resources than case management. So it's interesting to watch that happen. But it's supposed to be the most family-like setting possible. Right. Yeah, that's what that's what the goal is and to to avoid bringing the kid into care with strangers. And so if they're able to go with a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a teacher, someone they know, then one of those relatives is coming to pick them up from either the scene from the home at much less traumatic than when they have to go sit at the office or, you know, ride around with the CPI. Sometimes like a relative will come pick them up from school or from their house and then they'll just go stay with them for a little while, which is probably the reason why that is the goal, because you want to disrupt them from their life as little as possible. I had a couple of kids come into my home right from CPI, and I was basically called by placement and said, they don't speak English, they only speak Spanish, and one of them appears to be nonverbal. And I was like, okay, I can do that. So they bring the kids in. They're not really talking The minute the CPI walked out the door, the kids started speaking and speaking in English. (laughs) And so I told this same CPI that I saw the next day kind of what happened. And she said, I was there at removal when everything was going on. And I think they're associating me with the trauma. And I thought that that was such a poignant point that I hadn't really thought about before, but it was pretty incredible to see them so communicative and saying like, duck. And (laughs) I called placement the next day and I'm like, these kids speak and they speak English. (laughs) What great information. (laughs) It was simply... I think she was right. I think it was just the trauma of being with that CPI and like the situation that they had just been through. It's definitely interesting what I've seen with kids who've experienced trauma and how they use their literal voice to kind of as a protection, as like a safety guard to shield them from what's going on, whether that's um, being very verbal. I've got a couple of kiddos that um, when they first came were very loud all the time. And I've had that happen in the past for sure. And as they've recognized the consistency and safety that they're experiencing now, they're they're coming down little by little. Um, but I've also had kids who refuse to speak. My um, five-year-old, the day he came, I will never forget the look on his face his little scowl and he didn't talk for days and I'm like oh can he not talk they're like I don't know he doesn't talk a lot but then like a couple days later he had like deep conversations you know like he was the most verbal two-year-old I've ever met (laughs) and he sounded like an adult at two years old and like forget about can talk like he can talk better than any other kid but it was how he could control the situation around him was you know being able to control what people heard him say yeah that's so powerful they're literally using their voice by not using 
using it. <laughs> that is powerful. That is very powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. to some degree, a lot of these kids also are conditioned, don't talk to yes. CPI. Yes. I think that's true. And working with some of the older kids, that has been the case. Those are things that I've heard. It was absolutely the case for me. It's powerful. You don't want to talk to them and you shut down. And that's that's what you learned. You don't really know. Like, you're scared. Were you told specifically not to talk? Absolutely. Mm. So were you kind of warned away from authority figures in general, police and things like that? Not police, um, specifically social workers, which I believe my family perceived that to be CPI. Way to take your power back by becoming a social worker. I know. (laughs) No kidding. Uh, Wow. So if a kid does end up coming into care, a CPI writes a referral um, and that's called an intake, right? They complete an intake, which is actually information on a child. So they provide all of the information about the removal in an intake. Okay. And that's what goes to the placement office. Yes. Okay. And what is happening to the child during this time? Kind of like what you said, um, they could be with a relative at this point. They could be uh, being transferred to the office or waiting for a placement. Um, The intake is done immediately after removal, but the CPI obviously has to remove the child from the situation first and get them to safety or arrange something for them. Does the CPI have time or does the child have time once they've decided removal is going to occur to pack a bag or are the parents given an opportunity to do that? I think so often I've seen kids come in and they only have what placement and licensing have provided to them. Did you ever hear about my naked cowboy? No. I had a kid come without pants. And he was five, so it's not like we're talking about. But he had a cowboy hat, so we called him the naked cowboy. And I actually had placement of him twice because he did get removed a second time. But the second time, my house was full, so they wouldn't let him stay. So we only had him for like a night or two, but we were able to um, take him in when he uh, came the second time so that he didn't have to go somewhere totally strange. Well, that's good. He did have pants the second time. I was just going to ask you, were pants involved on the second time? Uh, I've kind of experienced both where sometimes random things are thrown together in a bag. And I, I always wonder, like, did the parents pack? Did CPI, did they let the five-year-old do it? Like <laughs> Sometimes it looks like the five-year-old did it. It does. That's a what stuffed it animal, no clothes. Yeah. <laughs> or a like, fork. No, <laughs> nothing that matches. Or a baby that then doesn't have formula and bottles. And I'm like, but it's two o'clock in the morning. Like, what? <laughs> who, who packed this bag? It's a, it's a high-stress situation. Like, think about how you're thinking when you're under incredible stress. You're not thinking about all of the little things. Depending on the situation, how quickly do those children need to be moved? Is the parent losing their mind? You know, what mm. is the safety level of that situation at removal? A lot of parents, you can imagine, are very upset. So they need to get the child away from that situation as fast as possible. That makes sense. That it's such a high stress situation, then they have to get the kid out. Safety, more trauma, seeing the parents so upset isn't going to be helpful for them at all. Right. Once the child learns that they're being removed, I mean, any more time in that situation is going to add to the trauma. Seeing their parent upset is going to add to the trauma. A lot of children are removed from drug homes, so they need to see medical attention immediately. Immediately. To make sure they haven't been exposed, whether they're breathing it in or touched by the parents with transference and stuff. I've definitely had some kids that smelled like some funky stuff come to my house and I'm like, I don't even want to smell this. How does this child have to smell this? Yeah, I can't even. A bag came once. Oh, don't talk to me about the bag. The kids always get new bags. <laughs> the, the, the bag stays because it was the parents and it, it's their property. Yeah. But the, ba- the kids get new bags every time. But, I mean, there is this one particular bag. I literally have no idea what it smells like. I've tried. It's like a chemical, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've got some bags like that. Don't know. I should probably, like, give them back to the social worker so I'm not going to, like, somebody's going to find drugs on my property because it's a bag that's got residue on it. I can't even tell what it is. Like, I I febreze them. If I can wash them, I wash them. You can't. Like, I, like, bleach through the wash. Nothing. It doesn't matter. Sitting it outside. I put it in a closet and I have it available for when they leave, but, like, I'm not putting something with, like, 
residue on a child. No, nope, no. Nope. And the wash does not seem to help. I don't know nope. what it is. I, I just can't figure it out sometimes. <laughs> and I wish I could tell you what you're smelling, but yeah. as a child welfare <laughs> professional, I have, maybe I, we should get I'm some drawing a blank. I don't know what you're smelling ever. <laughs> maybe we should get some experts in here to sniff some bags from the bag I mean, closet. Yeah, for real. <laughs> I'm still, like my adopted kids, I still have their bags that they came with. I can't get rid of that. Like that's like the last thing that they have from their biological parents, but I also don't want them touching it. Anyways, so when a child is removed, sometimes they go to the office, right? And then sometimes they go straight to their placement. Right. So a placement can be a group home or a foster home, right? Or a relative. Home. Well, relative. And, and if they're going to the relative, that was handled previous with CPI, right? Or does that sometimes happen after they come to placement? It sometimes happens after they come to placement because a home study is pending, backgrounds are pending. Maybe this person was mentioned after the fact. So they didn't mention the relative at the removal. CPI gets away from the home. Maybe somebody else speaks up about this relative in the area. So then CPI goes ahead and, and tries to homestead background check and then before they even get to a foster home end up in a relative. If a child is um, removed and sent to either a foster home or a group home then from their perspective you know they're taking a ride to the office they're taking a ride straight there sometimes there's detours to the doctor and then they arrive and what is their experience it's a bunch of strangers I've seen a lot of different reactions from kids who've come to my house some of them are like cool we're here where's the video games or can I have something to eat and some of them are like I think the most traumatic one was well actually this past weekend was probably the most Aww. traumatic one nobody slept <laughs> came in the door screaming the family support worker dropped and ran like you could tell from the way they ran oh. to the car that they knew what was going on I was upstairs and Jack Daddy texted me and he's like I need you and I'm like oh no because I'm upstairs with the baby and I go down and he's like this kid has not stopped screaming since he got here would refuse to move from the front door it was quite an experience he screamed for probably two or three hours I'm Pretty sure there was possibly some spectrum disorder stuff. And I let placement know when they were looking for placement for him to make sure he gets evaluated because it seemed to be more than trauma. But also it, it was really, I was, it was a very proud moment for me of my husband because he was amazing. Like this kid, all the kids are sleeping because they dropped him off at like midnight. And some of my kids are harder to get to sleep than others. So you don't want to wake up. Yes, you're like, please, <laughs> please don't wake do them not up. wake up that one. And this kid is sitting in the hallway right outside of all of their bedrooms screaming at the like high pitched shriek for hours and Jack Daddy was amazing like he stayed calm he sat on the floor next to him and just kind of like was like hey you're okay hey you're okay little guy um, started freaking out because I guess he didn't want someone telling him he was okay ran into my bathroom hid in the bathtub hid in the bathtub for a while screamed in the bathtub which of course made it echo I was just gonna say that was super good for the sound amplified that super (laughs) awesome my husband just sat there I'm like, man, like I like I can see like a mom doing that. But guys are generally shorter on patients. Like a lot of times they'll be like, I don't know the patients for this. I need you to tag in, you know, but he took hours and just sat there quietly waiting for this kid to like regulate a little bit. And then the kid uh, started sneaking out of the bathroom like this <laughs> on his fours and peeking around the corner. And one time he did it and Jack Daddy said, boo. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and the no. kid like got scared, but also kind of laughed. <laughs> And then he ended up coming out and just kind of sitting near him. And then um, my husband just like, he spoke quietly and calmly and he just sat there on the floor, not too close to him was like, is there something you like? Is there a cartoon you like? Like he doesn't speak clear. was eventually able to convey that he likes SpongeBob. So my husband's like, I'm going to go watch SpongeBob in the other room. And he went in and put on SpongeBob. It was like maybe 10 minutes before the kiddo came in. And then he kind of was like standing by the doorway watching. And we'd already got his brother was um and that's one of the things that made me think it was um the child had some special needs because his much younger brother was kind of standing protective over him and i've seen that with my younger kids with my kiddo who's got some stuff um how the younger kids sometimes like stand protective over them and so but we had already gotten him to sleep like he wasn't as difficult as far as regulating once you know he could see everything was okay um and this kiddo came in and watched some spongebob and then sat down and then he started laying down and then he was like chill and this was 
hours later. But, you know, so there's there's so many extremes. Some kids just just kind of go with the flow and they're like, cool, what are we doing? You know, some kids like that. And I talked in the past about the one kid who was having a panic attack and pacing and just kept saying, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. And my kids made a circle around him and they were like, you're safe. You're okay." And the ones that were in foster care were like, we're in foster care, too. Like, you're going to be okay. Everything's okay here. Don't be scared. And even like the little ones. And this was like a 12 year old. It was the cutest thing. And all of a sudden, like the anxiety just started to leave him. By the end of the weekend, he was like, don't let me go. I want to stay. <laughs> Who's such a cool kid. But that was one that was like um, a pretty memorable experience for me. Just seeing how my kids nurtured this guy. I think I've had probably the most nurturing experience because I have dogs and so that typically gets me through the tougher kids when they're first coming in Um, and sometimes the older ones they're fine once they walk through the door I think she was like almost 13 and she was like oh good your house doesn't look like a serial killer lives here and and it was yeah it was like midnight wow there was another um, child kind of with transport and that was on the way um, somewhere else and um, he was like oh no I've seen I've seen places like I think this is good like I don't know her but I think you're going to be all right here (laughs) and she was terrified because it was her it was kind of one of those things we were talking about lots of phone calls lots of calls to the hotline lots of unfounded um, reports and then finally something rose to the level of a removal and so she had had a lot of interaction with CPI but had never been removed. And so this was the first time she was removed and I was her first kind of placement, but she was terrified. And my teenager, I, something I'll always vividly remember is the dogs. It was the next morning and he just like came downstairs and sat on the couch and both dogs were with him. And so it's typically the dogs that kind of bridge <laughs> the gap in my house. That's <laughs> awesome though. Yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah. They, they love them. And the dogs are so calm and loving. You know, when the doorbell rings, they'll bark or whatever. But as soon as they see that it's a child, they're immediately quiet. I have a a lab that likes to jump on me. He does nothing like that with the kids. He's not interested, doesn't jump, doesn't anything. He'll go over, sniff, give a lick. (laughs) And like, (laughs) that's kind of it. My other dog is, um, she just, she's like, Ooh, a new person I can cuddle and snuggle with and love on. So it's been the dogs really. (laughs) The kids are always, they're sometimes upset because they're not awake when the kids come in and they're like, we could make them feel better. And I'm like, you guys are so sweet. Well, you know, it's midnight. (laughs) My oldest, I will wake him up if a new kid's coming because I feel like you know it's not gonna kill him to wake up at midnight for an hour but I feel like it does make kids feel more comfortable when they're coming in and see another kid yeah um and and not just big scary adults and sometimes the big scary adults in their life haven't always been safe yes so I don't know (laughs) I have a fish tank right when you walk into my house in my entryway and so that has also been helpful for the littles um especially if there seems to be kind of some additional needs or on the spectrum or something along those lines um when they walk in they're fixated on the fish tank and so it kind of appears like they've forgotten so their things are being brought in and set down and then whoever's transporting is like okay things seem fine and they're like backing out of the door slowly slowly that's always a good sign when they're not running (laughs) when they're not running out yeah no and i mean the kids are great when they wake up (laughs) they think it's the greatest thing to like have kids come in they've had their struggles at times or whatever if they feel like it's too chaotic or there's mama there's too many kids here (laughs) yeah or (laughs) or the joke with me like we're almost out of space in the car like you almost don't have any more space just means you need an envy (laughs) that's not (laughs) happening i I said that two years ago oh i can't you could get a bigger car without it being an envy like what because my car already seats eight you need an envy. No, I cannot. Do you want to take a test drive? No. I mean, no. I used to say that years ago. Too. In fact, one of the things, I, like, because in my fostering class, the uh, foster parents who taught had the transit. And, like, I told my husband, I was like, what's wrong with you? They've got, like, eight freaking kids. What's wrong with them? And look at this stupid bus they're yeah. driving. Like, how do you even park? Like, what is wrong with these? Okay, like... 
That's what I think. That's my life I'm living now. How do I drive this thing? Where am I going to park? Can I go through a drive-thru? Like, I don't even know. I mean, I definitely hit a lot of curbs. (laughs) You can, depending on which one you get, you can go through most drive. Most importantly, you can go through the Starbucks drive-thru. You are good. That's what I was wondering. I was too. That was going to be my next question. Uh, A friend of mine has like 11 or 12 kids now. I don't know. She has a lot. She had to upgrade to a larger vehicle and she no longer can go through the Starbucks drive through and I'm like oh. that's that's the limit that's the limit that's the limit for you <laughs> that is the limit I will never be at a point where I can't go through <laughs> Starbucks that's honestly vital I will say uh, more of my homes these days more and more are buying the transit or just 10 12 passenger vehicles okay so once a kid is in care whether they're placed with a relative or a foster home or a group home the things that start happening after that they have visits, usually one pretty quick after removal, as long as their uh, parents are able to cooperate and services are usually put in place or something called a CBHA is written. And that's kind of like something that directs what kind of services the child will need and make some recommendations. And then parents are given a case plan and they can accept. They can also ask for a trial, but I don't hear that happen very often. They can also go to mediation and request a mediation if they're not willing to accept a case plan. That's a newer experience for me. I typically parents just accept the case plan and um, kind of move forward and try to work towards getting their child or getting to the visits and kind of getting things moving. And there is a option to go to a trial. And when I was a case manager, I actually found I had a lot of parents do that. Really? Yes. My thing is, ultimately, it still has to be an acceptance or a denial, (laughs) even when they get to mediation. Right. But the judge is ordering it. Interesting. I mean, did you find any as a case manager that, you know, they went to mediation and then there was still kind of this denial and then it just, or is it always, we're going to go through these extra hoops, we're going to take these you know, one to two extra months to figure this out. And then ultimately they're going to accept this case plan. Well, the judge orders the case plan. If that trial, if it makes it to that trial, the judge would order the case plan and the parent is given the case plan at that point, but they're not saying I'm accepting this necessarily. So they're handed it and they're handed referrals. But in those cases, I found parents were still in denial. They didn't believe they needed the case plan yet at that point. Did you find in those cases that reunification was less likely or the case plan just took longer since there was so much resistance? Yes and no. I will say it's really case by case of the ones that I can think of off the top of my head that did go through that process. I didn't see reunification happen. More often I would see reunification happen with the parents that would accept their case plan and hit the ground running. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, of course. Yeah. That's interesting because I was speaking with an attorney earlier, and one of the things that I always say is that I can tell, not necessarily always whether a reunification is going to happen because sometimes flukes, but, <laughs> but in general, what I have seen is that the successful reunifications require a parent to come to a point of accountability. And most of the time, I would say 99.9% of the kids that have come into my home, the parents at the very get-go um, are saying... I don't understand why the kids are removed. I wasn't doing anything wrong or what I was doing shouldn't have had my kids removed or it was this person's fault or, you know, it was because of these circumstances. And that's honestly almost every case that I've had at the beginning, because I feel like if they had understood the consequences of the specific actions, they probably wouldn't have been removed because hopefully they would have been able to remediate them before the removal um, ultimately happened. But I find that the parents that are successful are the ones that are saying, this was my fault and I'm the one that needs to fix this. And yeah, there were some circumstances that led me to maybe be in this position. And yeah, maybe I got a tough break in life, but this was my choice and my decision and I screwed up and it affected my kids and I'm sorry and I want to fix it. Like those are the parents that I've had that are successful in the end from what I've seen. It's interesting that you've also seen that when they're uh, taking accountability and accepting the case plan right at the get-go that those are usually the more successful ones. Absolutely. I would say most often that was what I would see. There were, of course, those one case that would not be quite like that and would turn things around later on. But from the from the beginning, I mean, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. I 
try to talk to the bio parent and just say, hey, I don't really know what happened, but I can tell you what your case plan is very likely going to include. Because so let's get started now. Yes. And here are the resources. Here are the phone numbers. Here's how you do it. And here is what's going to help you. And it's going to be so much easier if you can go into court already having established some of these things. Even just a plan. That, yeah. That was my quickest reunification ever. And I was actually just talking about that this morning is that I had a non-offending parent who immediately was like, what are the things I'm going to need to do to get my son back? I'll do whatever it takes and I'll do it as quick as possible. They were like, well, we won't know until you get your case plan. However, these are likely the things he had all of them done before they gave him a case plan. That kiddo went home in like three months. Yeah. And he's he's still with his dad. And um, I love when I get to see pictures of them together smiling and doing cool things. So that was successful. And that was even though he wasn't the offender, he was like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, this is my thing that I need to fix. And he did. That's awesome. So when the kid is in care at this point, you know, they're getting evaluations. The parents are getting evaluations. They're getting case plans. What are some of the general things that case plans include? Stable housing, stable income, more often than not, like a substance abuse evaluation and mental health. And sometimes like a DV evaluation, right? For the victim and for the perpetrator. Right. And so the perpetrator would have what we call in this area, at least a batterer's intervention program assessment. And usually the assessment leads to like, okay, these are the classes and the counseling you need for it. Right. So they would evaluate whether they truly did engage in domestic violence and were a batterer and would benefit from those classes. And those classes can be six months or a year long even. Interesting. And then there's parenting classes too that are often part of case plans, right, for... Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this can vary depending on the severity of what happened. What's the actual need for that? Is it maybe just some extra support, just some extra tips? Um, They can actually do it in uh, therapy if they have a therapist and they have that skill set to do that with them. So I, as a case manager, would take advantage of that because it's somebody they already trust and listen to. And I found that it was pretty helpful. And then so usually there's like a psych eval and a biosocial eval, right? So these are all different evaluations that were like, we need you to go do this so we can determine if there's other issues that we can help you with before the kids are able to come home safely. Right. A biopsychosocial would be the first thing. And like a psychiatric evaluation or psychological wouldn't happen unless there were some. Oh, so that would be a result of the biopsychosocial, right? Yes, it kind of depends on what they come into care with. If they have, you know, a diagnosis that's pretty severe, bipolar maybe, and they're prescribed medication, then they, we would include maybe a psychological or a psychiatric evaluation, at least in my experience. And that would be because medication is already present. We want an evaluation. You need to make sure that you're appropriately taking that. If they already have a provider, we would encourage them to go to their provider, provide us records. If they don't have a therapist and they go to the therapist and they don't have medication at that point, but with their therapist, they determine that a medication might be helpful for them, then they would refer them out to a psychiatric evaluation. Sometimes it's in-house, sometimes it's a different provider, just kind of depends on what is going to best fit. And then sometimes they're assigned to take so many therapy classes. I guess it would depend on therapy for what, but yeah, sometimes. I mean, a parenting class can be so many weeks long. Domestic violence can be so many weeks long. I've had one parent that um, the case plan did include inpatient rehab. I've only experienced it in the one case out of uh, a lot. So have you guys? I haven't personally, but I know a foster parent who has a bio parent that is inpatient, but I haven't experienced that. So what's interesting is this particular parent says that this is one of the best things that has ever happened to them. And she wasn't sure that anything was ever going to help her really get clean if she hadn't done this. You know, so many people who have their kids removed who have drug addictions really either aren't able to reunify or have subsequent removals. So I wonder if they did more requirements of inpatient rehab, if we would see more success in reunifications, especially successful ones. You know, you think about numbers, if we're taking away, uh, we're just talking about addiction and we're not like taking away the bio parent aspect or whatever. I mean, I think you still have rates of relapse and they're very high, regardless of whether the 
program was inpatient or not. You know, I think the rates are higher of success with inpatient uh, programs, but I still think you have a high rate of relapse because I feel like when you're in an inpatient, or at least I've talked to somebody who has been in it, but it wasn't in this kind of realm. You're in such a bubble when you're in these programs and you're not living life's stresses. So it's a little bit easier to kind of recover and be in that place because you have so much support. And then when you come out, if it's not a transition that is slow and kind of slowly introducing you back into life stresses, it's not immediately, okay, now I have to get a job and I have to pay for housing and I have to do all these things and maybe I don't have a car. So now how am I going to get to these places? Well, and that's where the transitional homes come in key because a lot of the times they can help you then, um, you know, locate your job, find housing, things like that. This particular parent said the reason that being an inpatient made such a difference for her was because she was basically completely isolated. And especially because this was during the time of COVID Mm. where you were especially isolated because forget about like any visitors, like no visitors, nobody's allowed in, nobody's allowed out, no field trips, nothing. So she said that isolation, as much as she didn't want it, was the best thing that could have happened to her in the world because she literally had to cut out, was really forced to cut out really everybody in her life completely, (laughs) even the good supports. But, you know, obviously once she came out, she went into transitional and they helped her get more used to being in regular life. And then um, she's been able to maintain this many months later, almost a year later, actually, uh, still maintaining not having any communication or connection with anybody that was part of that life where she was using. That's great. So I think maybe maybe it's not everybody, but maybe it would increase the success rate if we had more people doing inpatient because so much money is being spent from the system to do all these therapies. But if they're showing up and just checking off boxes, what is that really doing? Right. And and not to say because I know when she was in inpatient rehab, there were a lot of people that were like, forget this and checked out, you know, but at least the people that really want to do it, I feel like it gives them more tools because it's their whole life is getting clean. Yes. Instead of like trying to balance getting clean with living life right off the bat. And I know in the beginning it was very hard for her because initially before COVID got real bad, uh, she was able to have visits with her kids. And mm-hmm. so I was there and I saw her and I, I know how bad that was initially, how hard it was and how much she wanted to go home because she would call me and, and say, I want to go home. And I'd be like, <laughs> I will kick your butt. Stay right where you are. Yes. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. You stay your butt there. Hate me all you want. And but, you know, at the end of the day, her life is different than it was when she went in. So it really gave me a new perspective. And I just wonder why they don't put that in case plans more. Um, maybe it was just this experience isn't the normal experience, but maybe it, funding is a problem or space in these inpatient programs. That's space true. is an issue. I, I would imagine. I can speak from experience on that when I would have clients that would maybe require that there would, they would need to be able to get to the inpatient pretty quickly because once they committed, they would hold that spot for only so many hours. And so yeah. they would need to go pretty quickly. Just imagine dropping your life and just all of a sudden be living somewhere else without your things, without your house. And so it takes a lot to go to inpatient, but I did see success from people that went to inpatient. I also saw some success from outpatient. So the right service for the right person, right? Was there a certain criteria that would require inpatient versus outpatient? Most often than not, when inpatient would come up, they had failed in the outpatient services. They weren't able to maintain being clean or they weren't engaging. They verbalized that it wasn't helping them and that they maybe some did verbalize they needed more treatment. They wanted inpatient. Usually I would see that it would have to be bad that they weren't benefiting from being able to be an outpatient before they could go into inpatient. And that was so that they could get the resources that the agency provided, whatever agency it was that they went to, that they could provide the funding for it so that they didn't have to pay for the the inpatient therapy. I think uh, the entry fee was something maybe like $250 or $300. You didn't have to pay it right away. And then from what I remember, you didn't pay anything else. And so okay. I think some funding and resources might be the barrier there, maybe. All this being said, this is what's going on with the parents. Well, let's talk about what the child is experiencing while we're going through this process of the parents, because it kind of begins and ends with this case plan, right? They start the case plan. At the end of the case plan, they either reunify or they run out of time and we move towards something different. But while this case plan is ongoing, the child is in relative caregiver, non-relative caregiver, group home, foster home. They are 
hopefully we're trying to give them the most family-like, home-like, normalcy experience that they can have. So they're going to school. We're doing evals to see if they need any type of therapy because every kid who comes into care has experienced trauma. And we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to cover all aspects of them. Uh, So they might be going to therapy. Sometimes they come to court hearings. I know it kind of depends on the judge. Some judges really like to see the kids in the courtroom, but also sometimes it's not really appropriate for them to be there. I don't find that it's appropriate most of the time. You know, I guess if they're older, it's left up to them. And in my experience, the judges kind of want to see the older ones there. Right. They're trying to give them a voice. Yes. Um, But the younger ones. I think it depends because on the other side of the county, when I have brought kids to court, I feel like nobody's happy the kids are there. Even if I was told to bring the kids. You know what I mean? There was a judge who is no longer um, a sitting dependency judge over here who not only wanted the kids to come every time, no matter what the age was. She wanted to see them. She wanted to know the full story from the caregiver. She wanted to talk to the kids regardless of the age. But she also made her courtroom a safe and healthy place for those kids. She was like, always bring the kids, bring the kids. She usually had a therapy dog in the courtroom. Almost all the time I was there, there was a dog. And if anybody was getting upset, the person with the dog would just walk over. Whereas if I'm on the other side of the county and I've got a kid and they start crying during court, I'm getting looks like you better get the heck out of here with that crying baby. In her courtroom, there's a crying baby. She stops everything. Uh, can we get you some snacks for the kiddo? Is somebody somebody bringing some books or toys. Like she wants it to be a safe place where they feel like they're part of the process. A lot of the times, especially when it's safe, she would have the kids come up with the parents and sit at the table and um, she would ask them questions. But also she wanted to see them interacting with their parents and see what that was like. But that it was, is very smart. Yeah. It's not something I ever experienced as case manager. I'm, I'm telling you. I've like, never experienced it either as a guardian ad litem or a foster parent. Yeah, it was really something to be in her courtroom. And because that was my first experience in foster care, when I started going to other places, I'm like, oh, what? Like, wait, I'm not supposed to bring the kids? Like, <laughs> but how are you supposed to know that they're still like alive and kicking? She really wanted them to be part of the process. She wanted them to have a voice. She also wanted them to feel like, hey, court is a safe place. She always had like little crackers and juices and the dogs and she had an abundance of books and toys and stuffed animals. For the kids, it was like fun to go to court. And initially I was doing a program called ECC in her courtroom, which is a specialized court. So because of the way that it works, you go every month. I feel like baby Jack grew up in that courtroom because I always had him and I had to bring him with me. I feel like the first like year of his life, he spent more time (laughs) in that courtroom than anywhere else. But it was never a place where I felt like he was unwanted there. If they needed me to speak and he was getting fussy like there'd always be someone run over oh let me hold them let me hold them you know <laughs> so it, it was a very different court experience than I've experienced anywhere else I appreciate that I also understand that in some situations you don't necessarily want the kids there especially because sometimes you have parents who are behaving in such a way that would further traumatize the child yes um, I was actually in a courtroom once where the children were present there was uh, not a case of mine at all I actually I think it was a shelter hearing the dad was brought in from being incarcerated and he was incarcerated for sexually assaulting the kids and as he's walking in he starts pointing at one of the girls saying it's your fault I'm in here it's your fault I'm in here this is you I was like bawling the whole courtroom was like what and the kid is just like ran out screaming and she was maybe like eight or nine years I'm like I can't even like that was one of the worst memories for me but in situations like that maybe kids should stay home (laughs) you know in Hillsborough County the guardian ad litem program has two different people with two uh, different dogs. So these dogs can be requested to sit through if a child has to be deposed or be in the courtroom. And when I started my fostering journey in Pasco, it was very quickly one of the first things that I asked because I knew that my kids were going to have to speak. I'm like, do you guys have, you know, the therapy dogs and stuff in the courtroom? And they were like, uh, no, <laughs> nothing like that here. <laughs> and and wrong side of the county. Yeah, wrong side <laughs> of the county. I have seen how much easier it is not just on the children, but on everyone. The adults, when the dogs are in the kind of the waiting area, you're not allowed to touch them unless... <laughs> 
you're there with a child that is being, you know. I to touch the dog, too. You're not allowed to touch the dog. Unless you're there with the kids. So I've only been able to touch the dogs a couple of times. Because <laughs> they the smaller kids were in court. Did make a big difference. And there, there are some judges in that county. They Most of them have stuffed animals and books and, and crackers and things like that. Um, but I've had a very different experience yeah. in Pasco County than I have in Hillsborough County. In the courtroom that I did most of my case management work within I there was a special room that was before you walked into the actual courtroom that had tons of books and toys and it was like a kid's room it was all like murals across the wall it was really kid friendly so we would actually put the kids in there so that they didn't have to to be present until it was time for them to be present so we could take them out of any craziness that might happen. I mean, all kinds of things happen in court, so. Definitely um, not always appropriate, but sometimes the kids come to court and, and uh, I think, you know, definitely depends on the courtroom and the yes. age and all, like, how their parents behave. I had one kid whose mom um, got very um, agitated, was very verbal and physical in the courtroom. Until she came to my house, she om- almost always went to every court hearing. And when she came, I remember, whether it was her case manager or guardian, somebody had said to me, she goes to court all the time, but it's not good for her. It upsets her a lot. It's pretty traumatizing. Um, we have to ask her and she always says she wants to go. I think the first time I was like, hey, they wanted to know if you want to go to court, but I want to make sure you know that you don't have to go to court. And it was like somebody had just like lifted this huge weight off her shoulders. And she's like, yeah, I just want to go to school that day. And so sometimes she would go to court and sometimes she wanted to talk, but she didn't always go to court. In certain situations, it's good for them to be able to have a voice in the yes. courtroom because so often the, the child is is like the last thing anybody's talking about. You know, recently I was sitting on a court hearing and in our circuit and it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. A 17 year old uh, spoke up to the judge and kind of basically pitched his reason why he wanted to go home. His mom was a good mom. There had never been any problems. The situation that occurred had nothing to do with him and his mom. You know, he started saying that foster care was had been a terrible experience. It's, he's going into his senior year. He was a very well-spoken young man. Not only at the end of that did the judge listen to him, listen to the sibling, then listen to like the guardian ad litem. It ended up being this whole almost like evidentiary <laughs> hearing where there was testimony. And these were like JRs that we were sitting through, right? So it's like, there's a lot of cases on the docket. He ordered them home in that hearing. He only kept one child in care and it was child specific with that case. And sadly, the child apparently, it appeared that the child had perpetuated the problem in the home. It didn't sound like there was a problem with mom and dad in the home. It sounded like the child needed some extra attention or care. I like people were, we were clapping. We were all on Zoom. Like it was the coolest thing ever. I was like, I think I even texted you guys. Like, I just witnessed the coolest hearing. I feel like, I feel like that's familiar. Yeah. So yeah, so sometimes it's good for them to have a voice in that way. Yes. They're often having visits with their parents, sometimes um, multiple times a week, sometimes, you know, multiple times a month, sometimes not at all. It really kind of depends on what is possible, giving many factors and the parent involvement, because I have had cases where either the parents schedule visits and don't show up, or they just are not in contact at all. So I think every experience is completely different for kids in foster care, whether they're actively seeing their parents on a very regular basis or whether it's they're just hearing things from other people. And that's the other thing is the child who is in care. Sometimes like nothing is really explained to them. Like I've had kids where they're like, I don't really know why I'm here. And they've been in other placements. And I'm like, you've been in foster care for this many years and you don't know why you're in foster care and you don't know what the plan is and you don't know what's going. I mean, none of us really know what the plan is because the plan (laughs) changes daily, right? Yeah. I feel like there should be more communication on making sure that the children, especially at a certain age, feel like a lot of the times to mitigate the trauma in the moment. A CPI is like, oh, you're just going to stay for a night or two at this home. Has any kid ever gone into foster care for a night or two? Ever? Not that I have one kid who was in for three days. His parent had been Baker acted and they fixed the meds and he went home in three days. But have I had a little over 60 placements now? I mean, you've had quite a few. Over 60. Oh my gosh. And um, I mean, it's been a little while. I counted Um, for her one time. Yeah, oh I gosh. wanted to know what time. I was That's like, crazy. Oh, so out of that, I've had one that went home after three days. I don't know why they're telling these kids when they come into care. Oh, you're just going to spend a couple nights here. I don't think that helps them. Um, Definitely like, not. I think maybe you don't say how long you 
you're going to come into care because I have been told by many kids where CPI had just told them or I'm not going to say CPI because I don't know who it was that told them but somebody who was involved whether it was a support uh, worker a transporter somebody had told them you're going to go home in a couple days your mom just needs a couple days and I'm like it might have been the parent well yeah it absolutely might could be the parent but usually they're telling me um that guy told me, not my mom told me. I, yeah. Nobody has specified exactly who it was that told them. But I'm having a lot of kids come to my house where somebody told them it was going to be two nights. And wow. what could be worse than that? Because nobody's coming for two nights. No. And I agree. I think communication would be helpful. I know with my three kids, two of them are in a space where you can really kind of talk to them a little bit more. And the nine-year-old, like, he wants to know. He wanted to know what was going on. My profession brings me into the courtroom and if I said I had court that morning he would immediately be like is it for me is it for me yeah yeah every time and I'm like nobody it's it's for work (laughs) or it's for my guardian ad litem kid or but yeah there was like a lot of anxiety because he didn't seem to know what was going on and he was in care for a long time like years and years and years and he just didn't seem to know what was going on so I rectified that pretty quickly and communicated <laughs> with him. Good. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in an age appropriate way. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. and I think in every situation, there's different information that you need to share. Yes. And sometimes you're not allowed to share certain things, but it's I think that, I hard. mean, yeah, that's a really hard, but I think that very rarely are kids being told as much as they should be yeah. because there's already so much anxiety I know. about living in a home where it's not where you're from, where these people are initially strangers. But then on top of it, to constantly not have any type of understanding about why you're here, how long you're here, and how are these kids being removed? And nobody's saying, this is what happened, and we just need to um, bring you somewhere safe for a little while. We're going to see what happens, and, you know, this might be where you go next, but to just, like, not say anything. Yeah. See, I've been involved in removals in case management, and, and that's what I said. So it's actually, it's crazy to me that other people aren't saying that. When the kid knows why and what's going on and can then come to their own acceptance of it, it makes a huge difference. When the child is still making excuses, it's what they've been taught very likely in the home. Nothing is our fault. We make excuses. It's always someone else's fault. It just start out, you know, (laughs) small and slow and gentle because they have to come and process it and come to some sort of an acceptance of what actually happened. Because then that means that they're admitting that their parents did something wrong. Right. And most often these people, these, these people, sorry, these kids. They are people. <laughs> they, they are people, people too. too. <laughs> it's true. Uh, these kids. Sometimes like, there were people even us. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> these kids like love their parents no matter what. Oh yeah. I wish they would understand that they can love them even when their parents make mistakes and do things that that are not safe. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad people or whatever, like they're humans and they made mistakes. And so the way we grow from the mistake is really kind of the essence of who they are. And I think the kids need to learn that. And if it's not being taught to them, I think that puts foster parents and adoptive parents in this position where we really have a responsibility to teach them that. Yeah. So that when they are getting into adulthood, they're accepting and owning things that they have responsibility for and then working on it. Right. And it being them knowing it's okay to make mistakes. And that we will still love you when you yes. make mistakes. <laughs> I might I might not have a big old smile on my face <laughs> and you just like threw this on the floor. I, I've got uh, my four-year-old is in kind of a wild stage this week. Um, his favorite thing to do is to walk around the house grabbing things out of drawers and throwing them on the floor. And then when I say, please don't do that, he goes, <laughs> that has been my week. <laughs> so but I still, I might not have a big smile on my face, but I still love you, but I'm not happy about and then sometimes my 11 year old <laughs> one of the other things that happens sometimes while these parents are doing case plans when kids are in care is that they sometimes there's a move so sometimes that's because there was an, a therapeutic need identified and the child needs to go to a therapeutic home sometimes a medical need is identified and the child has to go to a medical home but also you know there's disruptions there might be situations where a foster parent maybe they are moving maybe they have a change in their family situation or maybe they're having conflict with the child and unfortunately some of those things end in disruption
option, which means the placement needs to find a whole new home for that kiddo, right? And every time that happens uh, to a kiddo that they get moved to a different placement, what also happens? More trauma. More trauma. <laughs> and trauma causes brain damage, adverse yeah. childhood experiences, create all kind of health problems. You know, it might not be anybody's fault. It might. It's not the kid's fault. You know, it's not their no. fault they're in this situation. It might not be the foster parent's fault. It might be a combination of things but yeah um, I mean often kids are coming into homes where there's other kids there's family dynamics and just like in any relationship in anyone's life like sometimes not everybody gets along and sometimes it's just not a good fit unfortunately you know even if you try or you know you have to keep the kids that are in your home safe right and healthy and happy and so sometimes sadly the trauma that another child has experienced might trigger the children that are in your home or other things and it just doesn't work out and it's really nobody's fault right it's just not a good fit at those points the um, child may move to another home the other thing that happens sometimes is sometimes a kid is in a foster home a relative shows up and is able to take them as a relative caregiver which is a positive thing because it brings them back into that family the ideal situation right Right. That that's is what we end. want. That's what we want. Right. If they can't be with bio parents, then can they please be with bio family? We want to put children back with their families. We want to keep families together. Yes. And one of the things that, because we talk a lot on this podcast about how can we prevent more kids coming into care? Obviously, we don't want kids not coming into care, but staying in an unsafe place. But what are we things we can do to mitigate that? Things like more resources for families, neighbors helping neighbors. If you see a mom struggling, like what can you to help do to help her before she's in a crisis situation or making those calls so that maybe when CPI comes out to investigate, they see a need that they can help with. I think people are scared to reach out for help that way or CPI or whatever. They're, everybody's just going to assume their kids are going to be removed right. or, you know, their neighbor's child is going to be removed. And so maybe, you know, they don't want to call because of that. Maybe maybe more education about safe at home programs or right. that CPI does other things other than just remove kids like yeah. safe at home programs or services in place or referrals. I don't know that many people realize that. Yeah. Then, then, then because you make a yes. phone call doesn't mean a kid's getting removed. It yes. just means someone's going to take a look. What we've noticed is, and what we think would be great to have more of, is that in some cultures, there's a lot of family wrapping around family. In certain, certain cultures, like if you look at Miami-Dade, their number of kids that come into foster care is less than us. Do you know how many more people they have than us? It is multi-generational living in the household. So when there are problems with the parents, the grandparents step in and they help out and it makes it easier when they're all living together. And that ends up with probably less kids coming into care, which is what my assumption is. And and you see that in other cultures. And as foster parents, there's certain cultures that, like, if you sit and think about it, like, how many of those kids are coming into care? Not a lot. Yeah. And those are the cultures that live multi-generationally. And I'm not saying, like, we've talked about this before. I'm not saying I want my parents or my husband's parents yeah. moving into my house. However, there's definitely something to be said for that. Like, historically, that that was something that was more common. There's multi-generational homes that are even being built now. It's like a thing by <laughs> one of the bigger builders seriously where there's don't tell her <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but, but, but maybe there are for other people that's a great positive thing yes the last thing that happens for a child is they receive permanency the federal law says that that should happen within 12 months very rarely does that ever happen I mean I would say in my own cases I did aim for that and I did get that quite a bit that's awesome hey, where are you as a <laughs> I mean I I tried so hard to do that and it, it didn't happen a lot I mean I would get handed cases that were past that year mark and I don't know there was I just that was a goal and that's what I stuck to you know if reunification didn't look like it was happening at nine ten months down the road and the parents are still not engaged I was already on the second plan I was already talking with everybody about the second plan and trying to get that established or get the goal changed if it was going to be appropriate I mean honestly I think these long stays in foster care are one of the biggest problems that I see in the system when a kid is not having permanency and they're living in that constant state of waiting and not knowing what their future looks like and then it's a year later and then it's two years later and then it's three years later and four years later the trauma they've experienced during that time even if they're living in the safest happiest like healthiest 
worst house they could, it's still trauma to not know what your future is. And like, am I going back there? Am I not? And then by the time they do, when you're talking about three or four years, by the time one permanency or the other is chosen, how are they supposed to trust? That is the biggest thing. And then all that trauma from all of that time adds up and they feel the thing I hear the most, especially from from the girls that I've had is they feel like nobody wants them and that nobody loves them. And they're like, if exactly is what I would is the word I would use. What I have heard is if my mom loved me and cared for me, she wouldn't have left me in foster care for this many years. She wouldn't have. She she hasn't even started a case plan and we're years in. She doesn't love me. But who if my own mother doesn't love me, who's going to love me? And when you hear that, it's like kids should not be in care that long. And I understand like there are certain situations where it's like, okay, maybe they were in jail for that period of time and they need time after to try. Maybe they were addicted for this long and then right at the end, like they're doing so great. Let's give them another chance. I understand that when you see a hope for reunification, you want to hold on to that. Yeah. But these kids are suffering when they stay in foster care for that long. Right. They really are. I see that in my work. And then you see the kids that get older and it takes so long to get them to like a permanency of a TPR and then you're looking for an adoptive family for them and it's they're so much older like if we had done this after year one and they had experienced that much less trauma and that many less placements maybe because if you're in for four years often you're in many different placements sometimes a group home by the time a kid's gone through the experience of a group home it's going to be harder to find them an adoptive family in what I've seen I agree and the older that they are the harder it is to for them to find a place. And I think the worst part about that is they're old enough that they know it. Yeah. They freaking know it. And they feel it, man. They and it feel comes it. out in every word and every action. Yes. <laughs> right? Absolutely. They feel it. They know it. Hence the hopelessness. Permanency. Let's talk about what those possibilities are. Obviously, the first one's reunification. That's the ultimate goal. Getting them back to their primary parents, right? Yes. What else is there? Permanent guardianship and adoption. So permanent guardianship is when they do not terminate the parents' rights, right? Correct. So the parents' rights stay intact, but someone is assigned as their guardian, but that can be undone at any time in the future, right? Right. So a parent could come back a few years later, you know, even 10 years later if the child's young and say, hey, I want to reopen my case. I've fixed these issues. They have to provide some documentation. They write a letter to the court and then they can open their case again and potentially be reunified. What's interesting to me is they call it permanent guardianship, but it's not permanent. That is interesting. That is, yeah, I had not thought about that. That is interesting. (laughs) And it also doesn't really give permanency to the kid because they never know if that's going to be permanent. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes it, it is appropriate because that child may have like a very strong loyalty to their parents and their I don't know, maybe 16 years old. So, I mean, they don't want their rights, right. their parents' rights terminated. So for them, it works and they're okay living with grandma. They're okay living with their aunt. That's I've seen a lot them, of though. PG situations, though, where they'll have some type of conflict in the home right. and the kid is... Um, you know, brought back into foster care. And that just breaks my heart because it's like, that was supposed to be permanent, you know? <laughs> right. And I, I saw that too. Absolutely. It's heartbreaking to see a permanency situation fall apart. Then the last, of course, is the termination of parental rights. Right. Um, that would require a trial. Termination of parental rights trial. They're going to go through so many steps and then move on to adoption. But there's actually other permanency options. So there's one called APLA, which you don't see as foster parents, I don't think, very often. That's another planned permanent living arrangement and that I see with teens that'll end up going into maybe extended foster care or aging out of the system. Any child who's been TPR'd and aged out, is that APLA? So the goal of a case could be adoption and they could go termination of parental rights. And then the goal may be changed to APLA later on. That's not ideal. I don't actually believe I've seen that happen, but I believe it can happen. Where I've actually seen APLA happen was reunification was not going to happen. Teenager did not want their parental rights terminated. They did not want to be adopted until something else could be figured out. The goal was changed to to APLA when something else was figured out, it, it was independent living and extended foster care that that teenager verbalized that they wanted. And out of my couple years in case management and couple years as being a licensing specialist, I've only seen APLA happen a handful of times. It's not common. And it's not a term that I'm familiar with at all. I mean, I've seen quite a few cases, but all the cases that I've seen are either reunified or go to adoption at some point. I've recently had experience with it and it's definitely completely different than everything else 
else we've talked about. I've learned a lot about it. It's the right option in certain situations. Like Marissa was saying, there are, you know, sometimes the circumstance or the team has a specific kind of thought or goal in mind, and that is the best route right. to go if, for them. If they came into care when they were six months before 18, the probability of reunification is very low. The probability of getting adoption accomplished is very low. What does it look like for that teenager, even if adoption were on the table? Do they want that? So that's where I see APLA happen. I, I did see it happen one time in a 16-year-old, but that was a very different case. And that teen verbalized and was very well spoken, but they verbalized that that's not an option for me. I don't want to do that. Their mother had passed away as well. And their father was, he abused alcohol. So he was completely out of question. He didn't want to change, unfortunately. And he didn't realize what he was doing. And and that teen was, they didn't want to be adopted. So that was that was the option. So they they aged out of care. So thank you so much for coming. I so much appreciate you sharing with us and you've taught our listeners as well and that will continue. So thank you. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Jack, for uh, allowing me to uh, co-host. Well, thank you for filling in, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.